Today we're going to look, my plan is Genesis 4, starting with verse 27, and then through chapter 5, verse 23, which is the end of the chapter. That period covers the real first encounter with Pharaoh with the request, uh, not fully let my people go, but let us go out and worship God in the countryside. So where we left off, it covers a little more than that. It also covers the meeting, first meeting between Moses and Aaron. Where we left off from chapters 3 and 4, Moses was with the burning bush. God declares his plan. Um, He says he's seen the hardship and the oppression of his Jewish people, the children of Israel. He says, my children. Uh, under Pharaoh's leadership and in Egypt. Moses goes through his reasons not to do this. Who am I? And God said, well, um, you're the one I'm sending. Who shall I say sent me? Say, I am that I am has sent you. Uh, Well, what if they don't believe me? So he gives him the signs, the serpent uh, that comes out of the staff or the staff converts to the serpent. His hand that as he puts it in his coat, it becomes full of leprosy, and then when he puts it in the next time, it becomes clean. One, he's just described to him, but not demonstrated with regard to take water from the Nile, pour it on the ground, it will turn to blood. So Moses isn't done, I don't speak well, and God says, "Uh, I think I created your mouth and I will be with you. That should have been enough. But then he says, please, Lord, send whomever you will. Uh, Meaning, except me and God is angered and he says I will send Aaron your brother with you you can do these signs now go the ones that were trying to kill you in Egypt are dead so Moses leaves the burning bush with instructions to meet with the leaders of Israel specific words that when he goes to Pharaoh ask for three days journey into the desert that these people can worship God because you have met with the living God, and that's what he requests. But he won't let you go. I'm going to harden his heart. We talked about that last week. Israel is my son, and I will kill his firstborn. God announces from the beginning what that final plague is going to look like, or at least a piece of it. So Moses checks in with Jethro, his father-in-law, and he leaves with his family. But along the way, when they stop to camp, it says God meets with him or is there with him, and God intends to kill him. And we talk, this is where we wound up last week. Moses, they had a son that was not circumcised. Zipporah, his wife, circumcises. The son has some somewhat angry words for Moses about him being now a bridegroom of, bridegroom of blood. But God was satisfied and lets him live. And so that's where we're going to pick it up today <clears throat> in Exodus chapter 4 is Moses is not yet in Egypt. He's not, frankly, we're going to find out very far yet from Jethro, his father-in-law. But uh, let's read, to begin with, Exodus 4, 27 through 31. Who will read those verses for us? Meanwhile, the Lord had said to Aaron, Go and meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went and met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. 
And Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say, and all the signs he had commanded him to perform. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron relayed everything the Lord had said to Moses. And Moses performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord had tended to the Israelites and had seen their affliction, they bowed down and worshipped. Okay, so this is the first encounter of Aaron and Moses and also their encounter with the people then because it says the Lord said to Aaron go and meet Moses in the wilderness so he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him look back at verse 14 in this chapter and as we do we will see that God has already told Moses much earlier um, oops I picked the wrong verse um, I was looking for the verse that uh, he was, he said, oh, no, that is the right verse. The anger of the Lord burned against Moses, and he said, Is there not your brother Aaron the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently, and moreover, behold, he is coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart. So, clear back in the burning bush encounter before Moses ever went to his father-in-law and said, Hey, I want to go back to Egypt, see my people. Um, and, and begins the journey, God had told him, I'm sending Aaron to you. When we get to verse 27, it says, Now, meaning at this time, the Lord said to Aaron, Go and meet Moses in the wilderness. So this is the continuation of what God had planned. And so he goes and meets him where? Where does Aaron meet Moses at? Where do they come together? The mountain of God. The mountain of God. Where's that? Yeah, back on Mount Sinai, also called Mount Horeb. And as we talked about last week, and I'm working on the best way to let you see some of this without hours and hours of video. Um, but if you go back to this map, I've already told you that my conclusion is that ha um, Jabal al-Waz, I don't say that well, but it's just north of that Midian sign on this map. By the way, these were handouts last week. If you didn't get one, there's some more over there. Um, and um, that's, where, that's where I believe uh, Mount Sinai truly is. And there's lots of reasons for that without going into them here. And so Moses has started out, but that means that Aaron has crossed all the way from Egypt to uh, this same Mount Sinai. And so Aaron, it's not, when we see maps like this, and I can't tell you how many miles it is, I've forgotten, I knew. We see maps like this, we think, oh, clear across the map, that's a huge distance. But compared to the, the country you and I live in, I mean, even on foot, it, it was a distance, but it wasn't, it wasn't unmanageable. I don't know how long Aaron would have had to have been in journey to do that, but it isn't like he would have had been six months to get there, even though he was on foot probably. So, <clears throat> um, but that's where they meet up is, is, uh, is the mountain of God, uh, the Sinai, Mount Sinai. And when he's there, it's joyful. They greet one another with the normal way of, of friends and family with a kiss. And so they're just glad to see each other. So then Moses tells Aaron <clears throat> all of the words that God has given him. 
uh, and you would you it, you it would be clear I think that he would not only tell him what God had told him to tell Pharaoh let my people go out and and uh, worship but also I would expect that Moses told Aaron that God said uh, by the way he's going to say no and out of his hardness of heart that God would would intensify uh, there there will be there will be a battle here to get the opportunity to get away from Pharaoh so in verse 29 they go back to Egypt together and they bring all the elders of Israel together so they've got the key leaders amongst the descendants of Jacob together the ones that God is turning into a nation and in verse 30 it says Aaron spoke the words God had prescribed so he told them what Moses had been given to say to them who had sent him about the signs about going to Pharaoh and asking for the chance to go three days journey into the desert to worship God and so in verse 31, <clears throat> it says, uh, and they performed the signs in the sight of the people, so they got to see it happen. And in verse 31, um, I'm sorry, yeah, verse 31, it says, So the people believed when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, and then they bowed low and worshipped. So this is a... This is a high point moment in a way, isn't it? Here are these people. They've been oppressed. I'm sure they felt somewhat like abandoned. I don't know if that's the right word, but you know, what's going to happen here? This is not, not a great thing. Uh, about 400 years have gone by, and it's no longer like the days of Joseph. Of course, they don't remember the days of Joseph. What they know is their current plight. And um, they're there working as slaves. Uh, they are being intentionally overworked to a point because remember what the strategy of Pharaoh was to put these people down to make them less uh, viable as a people that could become a nation and turn against them is to overwork them and uh, try to see that they are minimized as a racial group or as an ethnic group or for that matter, as a political group. And so um, there they are, and they hear the, the God Most High has noticed their plight. They're encouraged by it. They like it, and they bow low. They, they humble themselves before God, and they worship Him as God. What do you suppose the expectations of these people were at this moment? What did Aaron come and tell them that God had said to Moses? Yeah, they might have, their expectations might have been, we've got the most mighty high God, the one true living God, aware of our situation, and he sent these men to take us out of this oppressive environment. And... I don't know um, if part of the, if you look there at verse uh, 24, 
and it said, And Aaron spoke the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. So did he say, oh, by the way, he's not going to let us go when we ask for this time off? I don't know. But let's take a look now at how things worked out. Any other questions or comments over the, the end of chapter 4? I don't want to brush by that quick, more quickly than I should. Okay. Well, let's take a look then at chapter 5, the first five verses. Somebody read that for us. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. Okay, so <clears throat> in this first encounter, here's Moses and Aaron, and they came to Pharaoh, and they reference, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. And those words to me resonate. Thus says the Lord. I mean, that's what you see in the front of prophetic utterances. That's what you see when people are clearly being directed to speak on behalf of God with the authority of God. And so this is, this is uh, we're here representing God, and they say it. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go so they can have a feast to me in the wilderness. And so that's the request. Pharaoh gives an interesting response in verse 2. It lets us know this is a fairly honest response, I think. Pharaoh said, Who's the Lord that I should obey him? That I should pay his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. So here's a fairly honest response from Pharaoh. I don't know this guy. Why should I be worried about him? And by the way, it doesn't really matter because regardless of who this God is, is or claims to be I'm not letting these people go and so in verse 3 they, they said again or said in addition the God of the Hebrews has met with us now this kind of this is this is more significant then and technically the God of the Hebrews has met with both of them he met with Moses at the burning bush and he met with Aaron when he said Aaron Go find Moses and go to him. And uh, so he has, he has let, said, we met with him, so let us go in three days journey in the wilderness so we can make sacrifices to the Lord our God. Otherwise, he may fall on us with pestilence or with the sword. So their, their message is, our God's commanded this, and we respect this God, 
to the point that we are concerned if we don't do what he's asked us to do, bad things could happen to us. Pestilence, disease, the sword just simply bringing some calamity upon them where lives are taken through violence. And so, so let us go. I mean, we're, we're, we want to do this so that we can stay in good relationship with the Lord our God. And uh, Pharaoh has a very easy response to understand. The king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you draw the people away from the work? Get back to work. And again, Pharaoh said in verse 5, Look at the people of the land are now many, and you would have them cease from their labors? What's Pharaoh's message here? What role does he see for the people of Israel? Work. Does he seem to care about their lives, their futures, their worship, their religious beliefs? Does he care about anything about them that you can see? No. They're here to work. And by the way, there's a lot of them. And so uh, he says the people are many, and you would have lots of people quit working for me today? No, get back to work. And so in their interaction with Pharaoh, that's how he responds to Aaron and Moses. Now let's take a look at verses 6 through 11. Somebody read that for us. Go through 11. So the taskmasters of the people and their foremen went out and spoke to the people, saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I am not going to give you any straw. You go and get straw for yourselves whenever you can find, wherever you can find it, but none of your labor will be reduced. And one more. You said through 12? Yep. Sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. I said so through 11. You did great. Okay. Stop there. Ooh, sorry. Um, and so... The people have gone away from Pharaoh, the people, Moses and Aaron. And so they're going back to what their normal life was to do work. And we can tell from this passage, what was the primary product of the Israelite slaves? Bricks. And they did many other things throughout the land. Uh, we, we know that, but... In the main center of their populace, this was what they did. They made bricks for construction. And so Pharaoh takes aside the taskmasters. Now we need to understand, at least in the way the New American Standard breaks it down, there's two different groups of, of overseers here. The taskmasters are the ones that Pharaoh has put over them, probably as Egyptians. When we get to the foreman, those are going to be the leaders amongst the Israelites that, that lead the work groups. And so uh, Pharaoh says to the taskmasters, don't give them straw anymore for the bricks. They have to gather their own straw. What was the purpose of the straw and the bricks? Strength. Strength. Yeah, 
And, and any explanation you want to give to that? Like rebar and cement. Rebar and concrete. Yeah, you, the, the, the mud needs something as it's baked to kind of transfer those loads through the brick so the brick doesn't just crumble and break at the first sign of any kind of pressure on it. And the straw uh, worked apparently good enough for that. So they would mix straw and mud and bake them into bricks. And so we're not going to give them straw anymore. And yet, in verse 80 says, but the quota, the number of bricks that they're expected to make daily will stay the same. So demand more work. Now they were already being worked hard, right? We saw back in previous chapters when Pharaoh becomes concerned about how strong and big the Israelite nation has become there, he says, well, okay, they tried various ways. He said, let's just work them to death, essentially. And so they talked about all the different jobs they did and and that all these people would be worked much more uh, stringently. And so here in the brick makers, no, don't give them straw anymore, but they have to make the same amount of bricks. In verse 8 he says, these folks are lazy. So they demand to go sacrifice to their God. So Pharaoh is branding these people as lazy, and they're really not worried about worship. He's, in, he's said their motives are really just to get out of working for a while. And uh, so that's what he's, what, the way he's labing, labeling it. And then in verse 9, he says, Make the labor harder. Let them work at it. And then they will let go of what? What, are they, what does Pharaoh in verse 9 want the people to let go of? Lying These lying or false words. What's he referring to? What is he, what is he considering lying or false words? What's that? The doctrine, like the word of God. Well, the word of God or just that God wants them to go out and, and worship. They're not really thinking about their God. So Pharaoh doesn't consider this um, a real honest request or he at least doesn't want the people around him to think about it as a potentially honest request. So he is labeling that and, and it, today we would say he's spinning it to be what he wanted it to be. Did he really believe it? Maybe, maybe not. In verse 10, so the taskmasters go to the foreman, so that's the people working for Pharaoh, bringing his orders about, go to the leaders of the Israelites, the workers, the, for, the foreman, which is essentially saying to people, thus says Pharaoh. Notice the language uh, similarity. We saw earlier, thus says the Lord. Now we see, thus says Pharaoh, uh, we're no longer providing straw to you. In verse 11, you go and get the straw you need yourselves wherever you can, wherever you can. None of your labor is going to be reduced, meaning you still have to make the same number of bricks every day. The quota will not change. In verse 12, we see the results of the people scattered through all of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. Now we live in an area, and was this straw like wheat straw? Well, they harvested wheat. It very well could have been. They used the word stubble here in the translation into English in the New American Standard. So it's probably what was left after some sort of a harvest. Uh, maybe they were cutting grasses, don't know. But imagine around here, if you had to go gather straw. I mean, you could do it. You could find somebody had some in their barn maybe that they weren't going to use. 
you could have gone to my dad's place and he said, well, if you clean it real well, we had, when we moved into our place, we inherited a bunch of straw bales that had bindweed seed in them. When we mulched the garden, we were very disappointed with what grew. <laughs> but it, for those of you who have bindweed, you know the joke there. If you didn't, well, that just goes on by and don't worry about it. But nonetheless, um, can you imagine, you know, they're, they're a brick factory. It's clear. I mean, you've got a lot of people up there in the area of Goshen making a lot of bricks every day. They're, they're hand packing them into probably molds. They're firing them. And clearly there was some sort of an infrastructure of where straw was delivered. We don't know what it was. But the straw was delivered, either the farmers brought their stubble out, their straw, or somebody in Pharaoh's way of organizing things had been bringing that to them. So now they've got to go gather a lot of straw. It's a little bit like going to the, the people who manufacture cars and telling all the workers, well, we're not going to ship in all those parts anymore. You just go get them and put them on yourself and see if you can make as many cars in the same day. Uh, are there places they could go get them? Maybe, but nonetheless, they're out there having to get not only uh, what they need, what they not only have to produce, but they have to get the raw materials for production that they had not been asked to do before. And so now they're out scouring the land. What did that do to the workforce? Well, it spread it out, and so now it's going to be tough to meet the quotas day by day. So now let's read verses 12 through 19. So the people scattered through all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters pressed them, saying, Complete your work quota, your daily amount, just as when you had straw. Moreover, the foremen of the sons of Israel, whom Pharaoh taskmaster had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not completed your required amount either yesterday or today in making brick as previously? Then the foremen of the sons of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, Why do you deal this way with your servants? There is no straw given to your servants, yet they keep saying to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are being beaten, but it is the fault of your own people. But he said, You are lazy, very lazy. Therefore you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. So go now and work, for you will be given no straw, yet you must deliver the quota of bricks. The foremen of the sons of Israel saw that they were in trouble because they were told, you must not reduce your daily amount of bricks. Okay. So, <clears throat> in, in verse 12, we said the people were scattered. When we get to verse 13, uh, the taskmasters are pressing on them. They're pushing. Hey, you've got to make the same daily amount. The standards of production have not changed. And so, you have to make this even the same amount as when you had the straw. Moreover, the foremen of the sons of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmaster set over them, were beaten because they're not making quota. And then they're asked, Why have you not completed your required amount either yesterday or today in making brick as previously? Now, <clears throat> for a moment, see if you can put yourself in the position of that taskmaster. Or not taskmaster, the foreman. So here you are, the end of the day's over, you don't have as many bricks as you used to make. So the taskmaster comes down and beats you. He's got the authority of Pharaoh, 
And Pharaoh said, same number of bricks, even though we're not bringing you the straw to work with, you have to gather it yourself. So now here you are being beaten for this. <clears throat> and you get asked a question. Why have you not completed your required amount, either yesterday or today, in making bricks? <clears throat> what are you going to do with that question as that foreman who's just beaten you, or uh, the taskmaster's just beaten you, and you're the foreman, and you've got this question. Why didn't you? Is there an obvious answer to that question? There's not enough hours in the day to get it done. Yeah, you, yeah um, I, I can't. You know, what, what, what are you thinking? <clears throat> what do you suppose if you explained it carefully to the taskmaster he would do to you? Yeah, did, did he want an answer to this question? It was pretty much rhetorical. In other words, we're not going to accept any reason why. You're going to be beaten until you get your production up where it needs to be. <coughs> and so they can't give a good answer. They're put in a position where can they succeed? Well, not in the long run. You know, sometimes in work environments when you have to do a short-term stint, maybe you can find a way to succeed. We'll work half the night gathering hay so that, or straw so that the next day we can make bricks, and then we're going to have to do it again. I mean, you might be able for a short time to figure out how to work enough hours in a day to get it all done, but it's not sustainable. And it doesn't look like even in the short term they could do it because they're getting beaten and still can't keep up with it. So they're... It, there's no answers. It's, would we use the word hopeless? Yeah, it's kind of, that's how it is. And so here they are in this situation that they can't succeed. And do you think that Pharaoh asked for them to make the bricks gathering their own straw because he had a problem delivering the straw? No, why did he do that? He did that only to put them in a no-win situation. You come here asking for time off to go away and worship for three days. You want a three-day holiday. Essentially, that's what they asked for. And you want to go worship. I don't even believe in your God, don't know your God, and I'm going to show you what happens when you ask for things that I think are contrary to what I want and what you foolishly want uh, is in opposition to that. And so here they are being beaten. Now, when you get in a situation where those people immediately over you are putting you in a no-win situation, what alternatives do you have? Do you have? Okay, that's one. I don't think that's going to work very well for them because of how well they are being beaten and would probably be put to death for leaving the job. But what else can you do? Yeah, submit or die. There's one more option we haven't said yet, which is the one they did. Well, you can grumble. Well, they did something first. Go above them. Go, go to their boss and say, hey, what's going on here? And so what they do in verse 15, the foreman of the sons of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh. Why are you dealing with us this way? You give us no straw, 
And then you keep saying to us, make bricks. Behold, your servants are being beaten, but it's the fault of your own people. In other words, we know where the problem is. It's our supervisors. Well, really, is that where the problem is? What they may not know is because this discussion Pharaoh had about having them make more bricks and I'm not bringing them straw, they said that Pharaoh told them that, but they weren't, the, the, the taskmasters said, Pharaoh told us to tell you, but the Israelites didn't hear that conversation with Pharaoh, so they tried Pharaoh out. Hey, you put us in a no-win situation, or somebody did. We can't make bricks without straw. This is silly. But notice Pharaoh's response in verse 17. You're lazy. You're very lazy. Therefore, you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. So now go and work. For you're not going to be given straw, yet you must deliver the quota of bricks. In verse 19, learning has just occurred. The foremen of the sons of Israel saw they were in trouble. Because they were told, you must not reduce the daily amount of bricks. So they went up the chain and found out, oh, this order comes from the top of the chain. We're in trouble. And they don't know, they don't have any answers at this point. Um, so in verse 20 is what we're coming up to. So let's begin there and read through verse 23. Chapter 5, 19 to 23, which is the end of the chapter. Who can do that for us? The Israelite army then realized they were in trouble when they were told, You are not to reduce the number of bricks required for you, of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, May the Lord look upon you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, why have you brought trouble upon these people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to in your name, he has brought trouble upon this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Okay, thank you. And so, in 19, they realize they're in trouble, and in verse 21... They, uh, well, in verse 20, I'm sorry, they met Pharaoh, uh, they left Pharaoh's presence and they met with Moses and Aaron. And they were waiting for them. Now, um, who was waiting for who? Uh, the English version is a little hard to put together, but I believe the people were waiting for Aaron and Moses. And they said to them, because they've got a message, they're waiting on these two because they got a message for them. And they say, May the Lord look upon you and judge you, for you have made us odious in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants, and put a sword in their hand to kill us. When they say, May the Lord look upon you and judge you, what are they saying? What's what's their point? What are they what are they communicating here? Yeah, and you should be held account for this. You should be held account by God for what you've done. And <clears throat> they go on and say, you've made us odious in Pharaoh's sight. What does that mean? 
Yeah, dude. Yeah, he's he he's he's ticked off at us. He doesn't appreciate us. He doesn't like us. He's out to get us. It's you know, the word odious is mean like stinks. You made a stink in Pharaoh's sight. We're not acceptable to him. He sees us and becomes outraged. And along with his servants who feel the same way, you put a sword in their hand to kill us. Now, has there been a threat to kill them yet? No. But they can see they're in an awkward spot because <clears throat> how do kings often deal with subjects that don't do what they're told? They often do put them to death. Um, and so here the people are saying, what have you done to us? And so whose fault is it in their eyes? Moses and Aaron. And so this fault is laid on their backs. Is it really the fault of Moses and Aaron? No. Whose fault is it? Well, you could say Pharaoh. God said that he was going to have a hard heart and not let you go. God didn't mention previously, oh, by the way, he's... He's going to double your work or increase your work by making these people go get the straw themselves. So you could blame Pharaoh for his response, but God told them what the response was going to be. Was God surprised here? Maybe we should be blaming God, in a sense, as we look at this, because God's the one that set them up for this. He told them, you go tell Pharaoh to do this. And tell him why, tell him with these words, and they did. And Pharaoh said no, and which was forecast. But he didn't just say no, he is now oppressing them even further. What were the people thrilled at when Moses, first, Moses and Aaron first talked to them? What, is, what was the thing that made them believe? I don't want to say thing that made them believe, but the thing that was cited as exciting to them and that caused them to worship. Go back and look at verse uh, 31. God's concerned about us. Yay, we got God concerned. And these guys are telling us that God's going to do something because they, they've been told God's going to take you out of this land with great plunder, by the way. Now, how's that working out for you? Well, it isn't working very well in their eyes at this point. And so this blame is laid on the back of Moses and Aaron. How does Moses respond? Well, in verse 22, he returned to the Lord. So he went somewhere, got alone with God, and said, Oh, Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? He's back in burning bush mode, isn't he? What do you think you're doing? I'm not the right guy to do this. This isn't working out. I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, in verse 23. He has done harm to this people, and you haven't delivered your people at all. So, where does Moses come down? He's as grumbly as the people, and he takes the people's side. Why'd you do this, God? And so, it's a very awkward moment here. Um, and this is the pattern we're going to see throughout the whole book. 
But let's go back. We looked at verse 31 a minute. What changed from verse 31? When you think about who the people were and their stopping to worship and their response to Moses and Aaron coming and telling them, God knows what's going on with you and he's going to rescue you from this. Uh, and now we here we are at the end of chapter 5 and they're like, some rescue. We're in fear for our lives now. What changed? What's that? Yeah, their faith is what changed. At the end of chapter 4, their faith is great. Here's God to save us from this. But at the end of chapter 5, do they have that same faith? No. Why might we think their faith changed? Okay. Yeah, um, all of those things. They had expectations that were not met. Moses and Aaron are going to go to Pharaoh, and we're going to be on our way. And the question comes up then, well, did Moses and Aaron tell them he's not going to go along with the first attempt? Because God told them he's not going to let you go first time. I'm going to have to bring other issues into their lives before the... Egyptians are going to let you go to the point that as he oppresses my son, I'm going to kill his son. So did they explain that? Don't know. It isn't clearly said. The only thing that's said, which kind of leads me to think he prob they probably did say that to them, was it says there in verse 30, And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. So it sounds like Aaron gave them the complete story and should have had complete expectations then. It's not going to happen on the first attempt. And maybe they were prepared for that, but what they weren't prepared for was not only are we not going, but now Pharaoh has put us in a position where he's demanding we make all these bricks gather our own strong. We can't possibly do it. And so we're in trouble. And so here they are with expectations not met. And Moses asked the Lord, why have you brought harm to these people? In, in, God, in Moses' eyes, it's God's fault. You're harming these people. And what started this all, God, is I spoke to Pharaoh in your name. And now he's harming them. You haven't delivered your people at all. Well, in reality... God told him it wasn't going to work just perfect on the first round. And so, so here we are with the first results and the people saying, Ah, despair, woe is me. I'm in trouble. I can't make it. It won't work. So when we look at these people, now we have the ability to move through time. We already pretty much know the story of Exodus, don't we? Did we cover anything too much? I mean, we probably got some details today you might not have seen before or heard before. But you knew this was coming, right? And you know what's going to happen throughout the Exodus. We're going to have many more crises. And every time, how do the people respond? 
What are you doing to us? What they don't stop and think about is, well, originally we were in Egypt. Now we're having trouble out here with the Red Sea. Now we're having trouble as we're crossing the desert. Now we're having trouble, and they keep having trouble, but God's always progressing them toward becoming a nation. And he's taken them away from the oppression. And they did leave with great plunder. So we can look back and go, how short-sighted these people are. Do you really think we're any different? If we stop and look at eschatology, and I really want to specifically talk about the tribulation and end times and all that, and, and, and the things that we might go through as believers, the things that believers today are going through around the world is horrendous. We've got our Americanized view of what it means to be a Christian, and we expect God to make things nice for us. And we expect that if we stand up for God, God will show that we are truthful, honest, sincere, and that this is right. And to be opposed to God is evil. Is that what God said would happen? That people would see it that way? No. As a matter of fact, if we looked at Romans 1, when people do evil, those around them will give hearty approval to what they're doing as they work their way through a depraved mind. And so I think there's a real lesson for us. As God deals with the, with the world situation toward his purposes, we may go through some really horrendous times. And when I was young in the 60s and 70s in this country, I would never have believed that we could see anything like what we're seeing today. Now, in 2023, I look at this world and think, wow, we're going to really have some tough times. But my prophetic intuition is not reliable. I don't know what God's bringing. But God has sees that his purposes are met. And we have to keep looking at the big game, at the big end. What is the ultimate end of all of this? A new heaven and a new earth where there is no crying or tears or or any of that sadness that goes along with the difficulty of living in a world that has fallen because we humans are sinful and in it. And so our expectations aren't different than these people very much. If things go really ugly for you and me, some of us, I might be the loudest one, will be crying, God, what's going on? Are, have you forgotten we're here? That would be an easy response to make, wouldn't it? But as we look at this, we just get a very good picture of what humans are typically like. And I would have to say, there is a certain proclivity amongst the children of Jacob to do it a little more maybe than some of the rest, but it, it's very clear that they are like us. Questions, comments, thoughts? When we think about God's purposes, 
Can God's purpose include our suffering? Can God's purpose include our being treated very badly just because we are good servants? If you're not ready to say yes to that very quickly, you better think about Job. What brought on Job's great suffering? Well, God, but why was Job singled out? Yeah, Satan comes around going, ah, these people on the earth, you know, they, they're, they're really a mess, aren't they? And God says, well, have you seen my servant Job? And what's Satan's response? You remember? Yeah, of course he's doing what you want. You give him everything he asked for. Oh, okay. You want to test him? You can test him. And God progressively gives him more and more latitude in his testing of Job. And Job goes through a lot, doesn't he? He gets a lot of different advice. What's the worst piece of advice he got, got, received? Curse God and die. Where'd that come from? The one who should be helping me through this tells me to do the stupidest thing I could possibly do. So how's it going for you, Job? I don't know. This is really lonely and difficult. His friends are there trying to figure out what great sin he'd done. Had he done any great sin? No. No, he was probably the most faithful man on the planet. And then God comes and talks to Job. And Job asks him a few questions, doesn't he? What's God's response? Yeah, who are you to question me? Did Job get a straight answer to why he went through all that? Well, yes and no. He got a great answer. And the answer was, because I'm God. I don't have to tell you why. You weren't there when I created this. You don't know my purposes. You don't know my intents. So you need to be a good servant, whether I'm blessing you or whether you're suffering. And Job goes back to being a great, continues to be, I shouldn't say goes back to, he continues to be a great servant and God goes back to blessing him when it's all over. But in one sense, we don't, I would not pretend to have the insight to know God's purpose completely in what he did with Job, but there's one part that is revealed. Job is a testimony. He's a testimony to Satan. Satan didn't break him. The only limit God put on him at the end was you can't kill him. Brought great pestilence. He's sitting in sackcloth and ashes, scraping pestules on his body with a piece of broken pottery. And Job stays faithful. So we would all love to be great servants of the Most High God, wouldn't we? Okay, you ready to do what Job did? I'm not saying it is, but that might be what God has in store for you. I don't know what suffering might come our way, your way, my way, as individuals or collectively. 
But we get a pretty good picture as we watch these Israelites, and we're going to see it over and over and over again as they march through God taking them out of Egypt and safely bringing them to the promised land in order to make out of them a great nation. We're going to see them constantly rebelling against the difficulties that show up that God meets each and every time. Does God meet them in the way that they wanted? No, because their idea would have been they would have woke up in the morning and there would have been chariots waiting with all the the plunder of Israel to carry them down a paved highway right into Israel where all the Israelites, the people living in Israel at the time, would just go away. They didn't plan on any difficulty. They thought, well, if I serve the Most High God, if God's going to do this, this is going to be not a problem. And it's easy for us to be in the same place. When we have difficulties and things that bring anxiety or just simple sadness into our lives, I would never suggest we ought not take that before the living God. We ought to take it to God quickly and openly as a father who loves us. But I think our expectation needs to be that God's going to take us through the difficult times or deal with us in a good way that the end result will be that we are his good and faithful servant in the kingdom to come, but it might not be very pleasant in this life. It might be extremely difficult for him to lead us through the world that's ahead of us. And it was going to be extremely difficult for these folks, but when you look back at it, was it really all that difficult? Their, most of their problems came because of their own grumbling. If they would have just waited in faith and patience at each of those difficult moments, you know, instead of saying to Moses, why would you bring us out here so that we would die of thirst in this desert? If they just go to Moses and say, Moses, uh, we have a real problem here. What's God's plan for it? Would have been a lot better, but few of us would approach life that way. Questions, comments? So as we march through Exodus, there are some things we definitely want to see. And one of those things is the great power of God on display for these people. We also need to see the typical response of people to the great power of God is frequently a lack of faith and trust and even joy in what he's doing. Um, if these folks had been proceeding with faith, you know what kind of joy they would have had when they got to the other end? Wow, what a journey. This was great. The very power of God was exercised on our behalf at every difficult moment. He never left us wanting for food or water. Uh, he saved us from the armies. He even destroyed the whole great army of Pharaoh. And here we go, you know, that could have been such great joy. But instead, at each and every turn, it was the opposite. God, what are you doing to me? And so there, we get a good picture of ourselves for a minute. And the way we might respond, hopefully we can learn from this and choose a different response. If you read the book of Hebrews, a huge portion of that book is looking at the Israelites in their exodus saying, don't be foolish like they were. Because 
They made the march clear to the border of Israel, and because of their lack of faith, they had to wait till that generation was dead and gone before they could enjoy the promised land. Let's have a moment of prayer. Father, we, we say we trust you, and we do. Um, Lord, we know that you love us. We're confident of that. And yet, Lord, within myself, I have this tinge of fear that in the hard times, I may lose sight of your great love. I may lose sight of my commitment to follow you at every turn. But Lord, I'm also very convinced that you have made it clear that I'm in your family and you are going to take me through this life well. Maybe despite me, with regard to some of those responses. But Lord, I want asking you now to lead me and to lead everyone here into better responses than we see from these people when things get tough. Lord, there's no question that you've shown us that these Israelites in the land of Pharaoh were in an impossible situation. And Lord, they blamed you for it. They blamed Moses and Aaron for it. Moses blamed you. And Lord, it's not hard to understand why. Lord, lead us from those kinds of responses. Lead us away so that when we have those tough times, we just but turn to you with faith. And uh, Lord, also teach us to willingly accept the suffering that may come because we follow Jesus Christ who suffered on our behalf for our sin and told us that the world hated him and so we can expect it to hate us as well. Uh, Lord, uh, you've told us that you were persecuted when you were walking this earth and the slave is not greater than the master. So Lord, if we are persecuted and maybe I should say when we're persecuted, oh Lord, prepare us, help us to prepare ourselves as much as possible and lead us through it where we are glorifying the name of Jesus Christ. And it's in the Jesus name we pray, amen.